0: This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the BCHA or its Board of Directors. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca, and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. Um, thanks so much for having me here today on your Sunday morning. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. As Dan said, I'm a former neuroscientist. I started out my career at the University of Edinburgh Medical School. But that wasn't my life plan. My life plan was to be a veterinarian ever since I can remember. I, I had deep fascination with animals. So my first best friend was uh, blue. I was an only child for six years until my brother came along, and I was raised in rural Britain. So to say that he was my best friend isn't an over-exaggeration. There were, like, no other kids around. <laughs> so here's who I spent my time with, and it gave me this deep uh, appreciation for the reciprocal relationship that we can have with animals, and I, I wanted to have a career where I would improve their lives. And I was also deeply fascinated by science. So this wasn't just a kind of like emotional, intuitive direction that I wanted my life to take. I wanted to understand animals better and improve their lives through science. And I thought that being a veterinarian was the only way to do that. Um, That didn't work out. I got all the grades to get into vet school. It's incredibly competitive in Britain. And it was heartbreaking when, at 18, my life plans didn't work out. And I didn't have a plan B. So my plan was to go to the University of Edinburgh. It was my favorite vet school. And I thought, you know what, I'll go, I'll do my first year, I'll dazzle them and work really hard and I'll transfer into the vet program. However, (laughs) in my first year, I started to learn about neuroscience. And um, I, I got deeply into and fascinated by the way minds work, how we learn things, how we remember things, and the neuroscientific basis of behavior. And so, I decided to stick it out and I did my honors degree in neuroscience. And uh, as part of that, I was witness to an experiment there with mice. Does anyone know the Morris Water Maze experiment? So I can explain it? Yeah, I'll explain it anyway. So what happens is you have a, a rodent, and in, in our case we were using mice. And they, this is a, a basically a deep paddling pool. There's liquid latex put in the water so that they, uh, they can't see through the water, so it's opaque. And there's this platform that they need to learn how to find that. And so you can track the animal with computer equipment. Usually you put like permanent marker on their head. So the contrast between the white and the black means that the computer can track their black head. And, um, this is usually the route. They kind of take their time trying to find the platform, but then they know that it's there. And then on day two, the route might, you know, they've, the route gets shorter and shorter until it becomes really direct because using these cues, they can remember where the platform was and they've learned how to uh, swim to the platform. And the platform's hidden beneath the water, so they, when their head's above water, they can't see it. They just have to learn where it is. Now, rats are really good at this. Rats are really strong swimmers. They really love to swim. Mice? Not so much. They're good at swimming, but they don't prefer it. And in fact, there's a psychological stress test for mice called the forced swim test. They don't enjoy swimming, it's something that stresses them out. And so when I was doing this with mice, I didn't know at the time that I was questioning the scientific validity of what I was doing, but I started to look at the mice and realize through their behavior that they seemed really stressed out. And I was like, you know, when I'm really stressed out, I can't learn anything. There's a point where that stressor is so intense that I can't remember things, I can't learn very effectively. So I started to wonder what the data, the data that we were collecting, whether that was meaningful at all, because the mice were super stressed out. So here's this concept of scientific validity, and I'm sure you're all really um, aware, but I'll define it for you here. It refers to whether a study is able to scientifically answer the question that it's intended to answer. And there's two different types of scientific validity there's internal validity and there's external validity. Now, moving on to, like, my career took a, a path <laughs> through uh, from animal welfare actually. I graduated my undergraduate degree and thought that I was on top of the world, I was the, this expert in neuroscience, and I applied for a job. And I got a call, and they said, you know, Elizabeth, you're really underqualified for the job that you applied for. But, and this is a conversation I'll never forget, um, the gentleman who ran the lab said, I can teach you many things, but I can't teach you to have enthusiasm for research, and I think you have it. And so there's a job that we haven't advertised yet. We need a neuroscientist on an animal welfare project, and would you be interested in coming to speak to us? So there I launched my career as a pig neuroscientist. I was a neuroscientist on an animal welfare science experiment to assess stress in pigs when they're housed for farming purposes, for commercial food production purposes. So I kind of opened up this world to me of animal welfare science that allowed me to use science to improve the lives of animals and not have a vet degree. So that was kind of cool at the time. I was like, I didn't know this discipline existed. It was kind of a young discipline at the time. And then I, I, after being in Edinburgh and doing my master's degree in animal welfare and behavior, so bringing my neuroscience knowledge to how we actually can understand animals better, because they can't verbally report to us what is going on. So how can we use their behavior to understand them better and to understand maybe some of their inner states that they can't report to us, their affective states? And so I, for personal reasons, moved to Canada in 2006 and um, Got a job at the UBC Animal Welfare Program. It's a research program at uh, UBC. I now I now teach in the program. And it kind of brought my journey full circle in a way because they really, they wanted a PhD student who was going to look into things like lab animal welfare. How do we manage the harm to animals in research versus the benefit uh, that the, the research gives us and um, how do we improve the lives of animals in, in research settings? So my PhD is in the ethics of using animals in experimentation, the governance of that practice and what lab animal welfare stuff we can understand through doing good science. So part of that was for me reflecting on this this experience to say, okay, well, in this particular experiment that I that I did when I was in my undergraduate degree, I kind of was like, you know, was was that a valid was that a valid use of animals? What was the benefit that we got? And I'm sure you're all aware that there is um, a push these days towards what's called translational research or translational medicine. So this is where we apply findings from basic science to enhance human health. And that's usually the cornerstone of our public acceptance of the use of animals in science. We accept that, okay, well, the certain harms might come to animals in science, but it's ethically justifiable because the benefits that we'll get from that will hopefully outweigh the harms that the animals have experienced. So I was really interested in, I'm a, I'm a scientist, I'm interested in evidence. So I'm like, okay, well, there's an empirical question there, right? Where's the evidence then that animal research benefits humans? And it does, it does benefit humans. But I think that once I kind of started to dig into it a little bit, I found that this translation from animal models to human data, and this is, there's a recent publication from 2016 that has kind of pulled a lot of this data together. It's showing us that the translation of data from animal research to human clinical benefit happens on average 0 to 8% of the time. And it's like, okay, well, we understand science is an uncertain endeavor. Um, sometimes we might say, well, sure, we'd accept not 100% translation. We might even accept 50% translation. And this fellow, Ari Joff, at the University of Calgary, did. Um, Some qualitative research. He asked people, okay, so if you were, if it's the cornerstone of our governance of animal research that the public says we accept animal research on the condition that it provides a certain amount of benefit, what does certain amount mean? What's, what benefit would you accept? What percentage of translation? What's the lowest threshold you'd be willing to accept? And he interviewed medics and students and members of the public and a whole range of different stakeholders like nurses and healthcare practitioners. And on average, the minimum acceptable translation was 20%. So it seems like there's a little bit of a disconnect between public expectation about the benefit that animal research gives us and the actual translation. So I'll bring us back to scientific validity again, because I've explored reasons why this might be the case. So the first reason is internal validity, and that basically is a question of whether the research was done right. So are we actually adhering properly to rigorous, responsible conduct as scientists, as a scientific community when it comes to animal research? And we can do things like... Um, look at whether people have done sample size calculations. Have they actually um, put the time and effort into their statistical modeling ahead of time to see whether the number of animals that they're using is the right number. Were animals randomized to treatment? It's a really, we have to do that for any, we use humans in science too, right? Like we use humans in clinical trials and um, you have to randomize patients to treatment as part of the the rigor of uh, science in clinical trials. There's not really a requirement to do randomization for um, the use of animals in preclinical trials, but it's good science to do that. It limits our bias. And then experimental blinding. So is the experimenter blind to the treatment that animals got? And when they're um, decoding all the data, are they blind to um, outcome too? So um, it's called a a double blind experiment, I'm sure. Most of you know what that means. So when we look at was the research done right, there's a bunch of scholars these days who are questioning the methodology of animal research because as it turns out, um, a lot of these corners are cut for animal research and it has bad consequences, one of them being the low translation rate of animal research to human clinical relevance. The other being that we make decisions to proceed with clinical trials with humans on the basis of animal research. And so what we're seeing is when people don't give us sample size calculations, when they don't do that ahead of time, when they don't randomize, and when they don't do experimental blinding, there's an overestimate of the effect of treatment. So say I'm looking at a new kidney drug for, uh, for kidney cancer. If I don't do randomization and blinding by the best will in the world we're human beings and we'll find what it is that we're looking for it's called confirmation bias and when you don't do those things to make yourself immune to confirmation bias what happens is there's an overstatement of effect in the animal model which then says okay well we'll go on and do human clinical trials then and we're putting human patients at risk because they're not actually getting an effective treatment and so I'm not just going to let you take my word for it. I have some, some things to show you. Okay, so this is a, a decade-old paper at this point, but you'll see my references are in chronological order. This is uh, papers from the top high-impact uh, journals in science. So science, nature, cell, nature medicine, nature genetics, nature immunology, nature biotechnology. And this is the out of 76 animal trials, 20%... Did blinding? About 17% did randomization. So this is this is just bad scientific methodology. Here's a paper from 2005. Um, this is Malcolm Macleod. He's become um, a leader in the field of uh, what's called systematic reviews for animal for animal research. So he looked at um, the efficacy of uh, this particular drug in experimental stroke because we were struggling with stroke treatments. There's been no new advancement in stroke treatment for about the last 30 years and people are starting to be like, well why, why is that the case? Why is it that we proceed to clinical trials and they fail when they get to humans? So you can see here that column number three, random allocation to treatment or control. There were only a handful of studies out of these publications that randomized There was one study that did blinded induction of ischemia. There were two that had blinded assessment of outcome. And not a single study gave um, a sample size calculation at the beginning. So what McLeod concluded is that reported study quality was modest by clinical trial standards, and efficacy was lower in high quality studies. These findings show a substantial efficacy for FK506 in experimental stroke, but raise concerns that our estimate of effect size might be too high because of, fact, because of factors such as study quality. And there's po- possible publication bias, too. So um, I won't dwell on publication bias, but there is a phenomenon where if you don't meet your alternate hypothesis with animal research, you don't publish it. It's called the... the, the uh, uh, File, it, file draw effect. <laughs> so, um, of course, we all know that uh, not meeting your alternate hypothesis is as important as meeting it because it's all evidence that shows us things, but we're, we're not publishing when um, the null hypothesis is, is true. Okay, so here's another paper by McLeod from 2007, two years later. So this is a different um, compound for experimental cerebral ischemia um, his group have actually specialized in the translation of animal research um, to human clinical data for, for stroke treatment. So again we have a bunch of studies here. Um, column number three is randomization of treatment, number four is blinded induction of ischemia, and number five is concealment of treatment group allocation. So you can see it's, it's patchy at best. What they did in this paper was they actually reran. they got the raw data from these, from these uh, authors, and they re-ran the data and said, what would it be like if we actually did do those things? And so what they showed was that if this is the clinically relevant bar here, this is the r- percent reduction that would make you, uh, give a treatment effect, when they actually, this is what the data was published when you pooled all that data together. But when they did the randomization, you can see a much lower treatment effect. And when you went from not concealing to actually concealing treatment groups, there was a lower statement of effect. So they're basically showing that lack of randomization and lack of concealment is indeed over uh, allowing for an overestimate of effect of treatment. Um, this is a study from 2009. They analyzed 271 biomedical studies using animals. 59% Either stated the hypothesis or a je- objective and number of animals used. And to me, that's shocking. Like, if you're a scientist, you need to state your hypothesis 100% of the time. <laughs> Only 12% used randomization, 14% used blinding, and 70% described the statistical methods used. Um, problematic because if you don't describe your stats effectively, people can't reproduce what it is that you did or, or actually assess your paper properly. 2013, this is a study by Jennifer Hurst, this is a systematic review of of animal trials. So she looked at 31 systematic reviews and it it wasn't just for stroke, they looked at spinal cord diseases, stroke, bone cancer, intercerebral hemorrhage, glioma multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, and emergency medicine treatments. Um, What they found was that 29 Percent of studies reported randomization, 15% reported allocation concealment, 35% reported blind outcome assessment. So the conclusion, you know, from the early days of talking about this in 2004-ish, we're here almost a decade later and people are still saying we need randomization allocation concealment and blind outcome assessment in animal research. So the change is slow. Um, Malcolm McLeod's group again, uh, 2015. So in this, there was 149 papers, and this was reporting randomization, blinding, sample size calculation. And interestingly, a conflict of interest has been added too, because another conflict of interest might also affect your bias. Um, And again, these are percentages, but the top figure here is 25%, not 100. So we've got very low levels of um, randomization and blinding, zero for sample size calculation and effects of conflict of interest. And then um, lastly, we've got this study. Um, This is a kidney, a kidney cancer drug. Um, It's a meta-analysis or pooling of all the data that's looked at this drug called Sunitinib for kidney cancer. And then they found um, 158 experiments that were referencing this drug. And again, we see very low levels of um, no sample size calculation, 37% allocation to treatment and no concealed allocation or blind outcome assessment. So the conclusion from this meta-analysis was that flawed animal studies overestimate the effectiveness of a new kidney cancer drug by up to 45%. Now a reminder that we make decisions to move forward to human clinical trials based on this kind of data, and if we're overestimating the effect, a decision will be made to to proceed. So this this all of this stuff led um, Pandora Pound, she's a medical sociologist in the UK, to ask the question, is animal research sufficiently evidence-based to be a cornerstone of biomedical research? And she states here in the beginning that public acceptance of the use of animals in biomedical research is conditional on it producing benefits, and because of this methodological quality that we're seeing, that translation simply isn't happening. So here's a quote from, from the paper. It says, the current situation is unethical. Poorly designed studies and lack of methodological rigor in preclinical research may result in expensive, but ultimately fruitless clinical trials that needlessly expose humans to potential harmful drugs or may result in other potentially beneficial therapies being withheld. Moreover, if poorly conducted studies produce unreliable findings, any suffering endured by the animals loses its moral justification because their use cannot possibly contribute towards clinical benefit. Okay, so that's internal validity, and there's things that we can do, right? We can hold the the animal research community to higher standards by putting guidelines in place. Journals might have editorial policies where you say, we're just not gonna publish your research if you didn't randomize or you didn't conceal treatment. So there's certain things that we can do to um, improve the internal validity. What about external validity? So external validity asks the question, is the research generalizable? And are animals good models for humans? Can we we replicate this study in other species, in other ways? So it's often said that animals make good models for humans because there's evolutionary conservation between species. You know, I'm sure you're all aware we share a lot of our genetics with uh, a lot of other mammals, and not not even mammals. And so this is why I wanted to bring in Darwin a little bit, because it's Darwin Day. So Erasmus Darwin who I believe was Charles Darwin's grandfather, he actually had a book on um, facial expressions, like emotional expressions in species. And it's really interesting because there are a lot of behaviors and genetics and metabolic pathways and physiological processes that are evolutionarily conserved among species. And we actually utilize those a lot in animal welfare science. So as it turns out, the facial expression of pain is a really conserved behavior we can very accurately see facial expression of pain in pretty much all other mammal species. And it doesn't matter whether you're very familiar with that species or not. right? So um, there's now been facial recognition of pain for mice, rats, horses, dogs, seals, um, a whole bunch of different species. And when you ask non-experts who don't work with those species um, to identify pain faces, then they can do that with a high level of consistency. However... There's an alternate theory, and I'm just, I'm putting it out there. I'm not saying that I believe one thing or the other. There's an alternate theory, and it's been put forward by a gentleman called Ray Greek, and he has a book called Animal Models in Light of Evolution, where he says that because evolution wasn't linear, it's actually a branching off, right? So it's not that there's just this linear process. We just, we get to a point, and then certain individuals in our population are better equipped to fill this newly adapted ecological niche. And so those individuals kind of branch off, and that's how we get new species. So there's a branching. And so what he says is necessarily that theory of evolution, which is now considered, like there's a lot of consensus over the branching rather than the linear theory of evolution, it necessarily requires differences between individuals and differences between populations, and that might be really affecting our ability to generalize from animal research to humans because, quite simply put, um, we, we've cured cancer in mice, but we're still struggling to cure it in humans because we're actually two different beings. So it's just a, th- it's a theory that he's um, put forward right now to say, well, maybe um, our current understanding of the theory of evolution and the way natural selection works actually means that um, other species are different enough for animal research to not have very strong external validity. So that's what he's saying. Um, another thing that I wanted to draw your attention to is that, um, you know, as a lab animal welfare person, we standardize the housing of animals in labs. So what this does is, in, in its own little way, it prohibits the ability to test whether our external validity is robust because what we're doing is the, the, the mice that are housed in Germany are housed in exactly the same way as the, the mice in Canada, in Italy, in Australia. So this standardization is saying, well, are the changes that we're seeing due to environment, but all the environments are the same, if we change the environments, would the treatment effects that we're seeing be robust to environmental variation? And so we're not able to say, in a way, we've got this kind of false negative by saying, okay, the external validity is fine because we've standardized, everyone's the same, we've reduced variation between individuals, um, but it, it doesn't allow for a test of robustness of external validity. And these these fellows, um, Hanno Verbal and Joe Garner, um, have published a lot in this area. And Joe Garner is a, a, psychi- a psychiatrist, MD, and um, has been very into how we actually ef- effectively use animal research and, and have it translate into human benefit. So he's really interested in psychiatric disorders. Um, so he comes from that place of wanting to actually do better animal research. Okay, so those are some of the kind of scientific validity arguments. What I want to do now is kind of switch gears a little bit because I think um, unless you've been an animal researcher, which some of you may have been, um, a lot of us don't really have a window into animal labs, and the only window that we usually have is through the animal rights movement, which I, which I would ca- kind of call propaganda in a way sometimes because it doesn't really... I don't know, animals in labs are usually very invisible to the general public. And um, my job is to try and understand animals better so that we can provide better for them. And so, um, What I want to do is actually introduce you to some of the animals that we use in science. Not to kind of you know, get the violins out and tug on your emotional heartstrings, but to actually present to you animals that are not in these horrific, graphic, victimizing situations in labs, but to actually show you who they are and what they're capable of. Um, Because keeping them in diminished environments in labs can actually really affect our science. So these are zebrafish. um, Fish, surprisingly, are now the number one lab animal used in Canada, as of our last count in 2014. Um, Lots of reasons for that. So zebrafish in particular are transparent when they're juvenile, so we don't need to do invasive stuff to study development. They're transparent so you can see their organs developing. So it's a plus for animal welfare. We don't need to cut up fish to look at their organs. We can just see them. Um, I actually just finished reading a book called What a Fish Knows. It's by an ethologist called Jonathan Balcom. and it, it blew my mind. What fish are capable of? I don't really think of fish. Really, um, you know, they don't trigger our empathy in any meaningful way. They don't have vocalization that we can understand. They don't have facial expressions in the same way as other mammals. And so we tend to—they're so alien to us that we don't really give them any any thought. As it turns out, a lot of the current scientific evidence is showing that fish are highly capable of feeling pain and suffering from it and choosing to avoid painful situations if they're given the chance to do so. They have complex traditions and cultures of their own. There um, there are certain species of fish that uh, engage in reconciliation behavior. So when they've done something that they need to make amends for, they give another fish a little back rub. And people who know way more about animal behavior or fish behavior than I do have said that's the only function of that behavior is to make amends when they've done something that they need to apologize for. So fish are kind of coming into their own in terms of, and that's the reason I put them here first, is because we don't usually think about them too much. So, and all these animals are lab animals, just to clarify that. This is a lab bunny, um, New Zealand white. They're usually um, the most typical bunnies used in science. Um, they're usually used to raise antibodies, and those antibodies go on to become, like, you know, help in vaccine development or cancer treatments or whatever. Um, has anyone had pet rabbits ever? Yeah, me too. And I actually... Um, I had never had rabbits before, and I didn't really know whether... I didn't know how it was going to go. I I thought that I would do my thing, and they would do their thing, and they would just be, like, cute to look at. And as it turned out, we had a really kind of ability to have a reciprocal relationship. Like, they knew where the cilantro was in the crisper in the fridge. And whenever I was in the kitchen, they would come and like butt the back of my feet to to ask for cilantro. And uh, only one of them likes cilantro. They have their distinct preferences and likes and dislikes. The other one was like, Ugh, cilantro, but apples, sweet. I'll take some apple. So I learned a lot by living with two rabbits. And we clicker trained them so they, didn't, uh, they weren't caged at all. They just had free run of our house and we'd clicker trained them to use, um, to use a little latrine area, which they did. They were highly intelligent and able to be trained to do that. Lab dogs are often used for the testing of the safety and efficacy of me- um, veterinary and human medical treatments. Um, who has had a pet dog in your life? Yeah, so lots of people, me too, as you saw. Um, so I think we all understand that dogs are actually their pack animals. They they really develop strong bonds with their caregivers so they can understand our cues and our behaviors and our voice commands. Um, empirical evidence has shown that dogs can actually be capable of deeper kind of emotional processes like uh, empathy and anger and jealousy. This is a uh, Xenopus laevis, so this is a South African uh, clawed frog. I actually did have one of these at home too. Very fun, fun little guy. Um, These are the frogs that usually end up on dissection trays in high schools. And so they're used for lots of other things too. But um, um, interestingly, um, frogs don't have the same skin structure as we do. So they actually have no keratin in their skin. So they're actually, it's a permeable membrane. So that's why they're kind of (laughs) slimy, I guess. Um, And so they're just interesting to study for uh, respiration reasons because they do have lungs, but they can also breathe and bring in oxygen with their skin too. So lots of studies with frogs. Um, Primates are used in science. These are two uh, rhesus macaque um, monkeys. Rhesus macaques are uh, a popular primate since uh, chimpanzees have somewhat fallen out of favor, and I, I don't know whether you're aware of the news, but the NIH in the U.S. Just last year decided to retire all of their um, chimpanzees from research in the U.S. Uh, we don't use chimpanzees here in Canada, nor do the U.K. use chimpanzees, and no other great apes are uh, used in science. But what we do use are um, who we use are rhesus macaques or um, other types of primates. And they're often used for higher order, um, to study higher order cognitive disorders. So Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, things like that. These particular species are incredibly hard to provide for. It's hard to provide them a good life in a a laboratory. Uh, Mice. So we have the Mice, and this, I think mice are the usual suspect when you think about animals in research. A lot of people usually think about mice. Um, I've never had pet mice, but I've worked with mice in labs. I, I worked at the Animal Care Center at UBC for a number of years. And um, they're funny little critters. They like their patch. They like their territory. And um, they've also been shown to be highly... Um, complex emotionally. They, um, for example, will be more highly sensitive to painful stimulus when they've seen another mouse that they know, like a friend or a cage mate, um, be exposed to the same stimulus. So they're more, there's kind of that empathetic um, behavior. And lastly, rats. So another rodent species. Rats are often used in psychology. They're incredibly smart, um, really apt problem solvers. Um, A little bigger, so sometimes, so for the water maze, it was actually easier to work with hooded rats, so we didn't need to mark them. Worcester hooded rats have a black head to start with, you don't need the permanent marker, and they're bigger so the computer detected them more easily. Um, So there's lots of reasons for using rats, they're um, also, like mice, um, highly emotionally complex and um, intelligent. So it's often assumed that because we've bred, um, we've inbred rats for hundreds of generations that they've lost some of their natural tendencies. And so there's an argument that, well, lab rats are now their own separate species and they don't have the same needs uh, as their wild counterparts because where they're now uh, on this natural selection, we've inbred them for so many generations that you know they're just used to being in this captive lab environment. So one fellow at the University of Oxford said, well, I wonder what would happen if we just put rats in a naturalistic environment then and see what happens. Like, I wonder if they'll display any behaviors that their wild counterparts display. So that's a longer video. It's available on YouTube. It's called A Natural History of the Lab Rat, so that rats can speak for themselves and you can, uh, you can see them for who they are as, as individuals. Okay, so all of that scientific evidence, the scientific validity, internal validity, external validity stuff uh, really sparked my curiosity about, well, okay, well, if that translation isn't happening, then are there better ways of doing science that would advance human health? And then, of course, my my own uh, background in animal welfare science and understanding animals better raises ethical questions for me, too, um, about, you know, we, we don't... Use humans in science in the same way that we use animals, um, but what is it that really separates us from animals meaningfully, other than our species membership, which seems kind of arbitrary to me? Um, and you know, I've delved into ethical theory a lot for my for my PhD, and I, I teach um, ethical issues in science, and I taught poli- um, a, a class on politics, animals, and ethics, and so. I'm, I'm yet to find a theory that would actually be really robust in justifying um, the use of certain species in research, um, just based on the fact that we, we wouldn't accept this treatment for humans. So, um, what, what, what's the solution then? What's the solution? All right, so I'm, I'll share with you some um, really cool news that we've shared on our website recently. So, there's a huge m- push to develop. Uh, Non-animal alternatives in science. And there's some really creative, inventive um, scientists on the job. So here's um, a story just from, I guess it was posted uh, yesterday, Researchers developed a device that emulates human kidney function and could replace animal and human testing. So this uh, says a new device created by researchers and engineers at Binghamton University models human kidney function and it provides a non-animal alternative for research on how drugs affect kidneys and blood filtration. We can now do 3D bioprinting using human stem cells so we can print human skin. and. Um, it says here the bioprinted skin can be used in transplants for burn victims or to replace the use of animals for testing chemicals, cosmetics, or pharmaceuticals. Uh, mini brains, clusters of human brain cells grown in the lab called mini brains, are helping to advance neurological diseases research. And they've been used to help learn more about human specific neurological disorders like Zika virus. And um, as they're further developed in the future, they will be able to replace numerous animal models and provide uh, valuable non-animal alternatives for neurological diseases research. Uh, These tissue chips were developed at Texas A&M University, and... um, this work will help facilitate the use of tissue chips for drug and chemical testing in the U.S. and Europe, and they may improve our ability to ensure that a drug is safe before clinical trials begin and could ultimately replace drug testing in humans and animals. And then lastly, 3D printed bioorgans. There's actually a local company called Aspect Biosystems that does this. Um, and the heart on the chip is one. Uh, it's a fully automated digital manufacturing procedure uh, that can be quickly fabricated and customized to allow reaches, researchers to collect reliable data and these can um, offer non-animal alternatives so the science isn't there yet. I don't think that we can replace animal research tomorrow. That's not my that's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm saying is that I, I really believe that some of our funding efforts for science should go in this direction. And um part of that led to the creation of the Animals in Science Policy Institute. So we're only two years old. Um I co-founded the Policy Institute with some colleagues in the summer of 2015. And our vision is a society where public ethic and technological advancements in the scientific community have made the use of non-animals in science obsolete. Now, just to clarify, I mean for the development of human medicine, of course, we'll still do work with animals for animals' benefit, uh, like veterinary research and understanding animals better, like animal welfare science necessarily uses animals because they're the target organism. So our our mission is to build an ethical culture of science that respects animal life by promoting replacement and reduction of animals in research, teaching, and testing. And we aim to do that in uh, several different ways. Our our charitable purpose is to advance education. So we're conducting research projects. We provide up-to-date resources and information. We collaborate with stakeholders in science and policy and liaise with researchers, governing bodies, and other decision makers. And then we encourage transparency and meaningful public engagement about the use of animals in science. Here are my board of directors. So we have uh, Leslie Fox, she's our vice president. Marcy Potter is our secretary treasurer. Um, Nicole Fenwick and Holly Longstaff. Dr. Holly Longstaff. Interestingly, the reason I got her on the board is because Holly is um, she's an ethics consultant, and she actually specializes in human research ethics. So I'm interested in what we can learn about how we govern the use of humans in uh, in science. Um, and then Sarah Dubois is our president. She's the chief scientific officer of the BCSPCA. We are currently funded by Lush Cosmetics to do a project on high school dissection. So, when I said that we were doing our own research projects, we are looking at um, replacement of animals in high school education. So, I've got some stuff that you can play with later. Um, so. I think it's clear to you all, hopefully, that I'm I'm an evidence-based person. Like, where is the evidence that dissection has any educational merit? I went through my entire scientific training, and I never dissected an animal. It just wasn't offered to me in Britain. So when I came to Canada and I learned that 6 million animals across North America, including the States, are used for dissection in high schools, I was like, oh, that's really interesting to me, because that was never even offered to me. And I had a really successful career as a, as a neuroscientist before altering my path. Um, so I asked the question, like, what's the educational merit? So there, there are some non-animal alternatives to dissection that exist. How do students learn with them? Like, how well do they do in comparison to using dissection? I found 46 studies that did a direct comparison of educational merit um, of uh, dissection methods versus non-animal teaching methods. I found that 18 of those were, showed that the non-animal methods actually help students learn better. Uh, 23 of them, they are about the same. And then uh, 5 of them uh, where the, the dissection actually helped students learn better. So I think that this is actually pretty compelling. Uh, um, it's pretty compelling. If we, if we care about our education and, and science education, then maybe there's an argument here to be made, more than maybe. There's an argument to be made here that we should actually at least supplement dissection with non-animal methods. Teachers are interested in economics, like how much do these cost? Um, So here's how the math breaks down. So with our struggling school budgets, if you do real animal dissection, one frog is about $10.00. One fetal pig is about $25. A sea star, probably about $8 each. So if we do a calculation on the average of 30 students per class, one animal per two students, then you get about $375, between 120 to $375 per class per year. It's an annual expense for your science budget. Um, This frog dissection app that I have, and and I'll send it around so you can play with it, it's $6 one-time fee. You can download it onto all of your devices as long as you're the license holder, and it's not an annual fee. It's $6 always, always. And so, I mean, I think that the math kind of just speaks for itself, and you can use your science budget to do other things. There is an annual subscription package if you want to do other species like frog, fetal pig, starfish, squid, cow's eye, and that's about $350 per year. It's comparable, a little cheaper. You also get 300 logins per day for a full year, so you could do a cost sharing with the schools in your district and make it even cheaper. And I also wanted to speak about the three R's, so the use of animals in research, teaching, and testing is governed by three internationally accepted principles, where um, replacement, reduction, refinement. So the principle of replacement states that animals should only be used if the best efforts to find an alternative have failed. I think it's pretty clear on the education piece that alternatives exist that are extremely educationally meritorious. And so because many non-animal alternatives for dissection are available and they can lead to educational success, I think it's actually an ethical responsibility to use non-animal methods for teaching our science students. And there is indeed a policy from the BC Teachers Federation that says that um, they encourage teachers to consider the use of non-animal alternatives for dissection. So I'll just show you a quick picture gallery before some questions. So um, we have a partnership with Science World and we go to their Teen Tuesdays where um, Science World is closed for a couple of hours on the last Tuesday of every month and um, high school teachers can book uh, time with their students at Science World. And so we're usually there engaging with teachers and students. Um, I'm part of the Scientists and Innovators in the Schools program for Science World, so teachers can book me to come and do a guest class, whether that's using non-animal alternatives in science or talking about other things. Um, We're growing our volunteer team, so this is Anna and Betsy, and this is our booth at Science World. And here are some of the non-animal things that we have. So this is Lilypad, our frog, and she comes completely apart, and then you have to actually know your anatomy to put her back together. She's great. Um, we have an iPad dissection for a rat along with a model, so you can take the model apart and do it alongside the, the rat dissection. And then here's the frog dissection, and I'm going to send it around because I have it with me, so you can play with it yourselves. This is who we're funded by currently, um, LUSH, uh, BC Foundation for Non-Animal Research, BC SPCA, and we have support from the BC Teachers Federation, not financial, but um, uh, in-kind support where they're sharing our resources with teachers, which is great. And we actually are in the throes of getting charitable status, which I'm sure for those of you who've worked in the non-profit sector, is was a lot of paperwork. Especially given that you won't get charitable status in Canada if you're an anti vivisection section organisation, and so we had to do a lot of making sure they understood the purpose of our organization. So if you want to follow us, there's our website. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and there's my personal email for the Society.